chapter 5 is where we pick things up tonight in our journey through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. While we're turning there, um, I want to just remind you it's a kind of a hinge week this week in, in that summer comes kind of to an official end. And uh, uh, even though technically summer continues, but uh, fall and school and a whole different vibe to everything. Just remember all the things that are going to be happening this next week. Labor Day baptism and picnic tomorrow. That's for everyone, not only those that are being water baptized from noon to four. And then the, on Tuesday, the Truth Project will be starting uh, a series on uh, Tuesday evenings. And so that begins this week. On Wednesday, we'll be picking up uh, with the uh, Ladies' Evening Bible Study and the Calvary Kids Bible Club and Team 56 Bible Study. Uh, starting this Wednesday evening, and so all of that launching. Also this Friday, uh, again, be aware of the Inside the Revolution webcast that's going to be coming from Calvary Chapel, Philly, uh, uh, this coming Friday. Important to be here at 7 p.m. our time promptly, because that's when they're going to do the feed. If you go online to Joel Rosenberg's website, uh, they're going to start at 7 o'clock over there on the event, and then they're going to do the uh, web, uh, do the feed for the rest of the country, uh, seven o'clock our time. And so, come on in and and be a part of that. Fascinating what the Lord is doing in the realm of of Islam and in terms of uh, what's going on in the world and how much of a fulfillment of Scripture that it is. But then also so many coming to know the Lord, and we rarely get exposed to that. And it's a good equipping. Joel Rosenberg has a great concern for the whole world and. And uh, it's good to be equipped related to uh, reaching these folks, understanding what they're about also. Shelter Cove, local church here, is going to be uh, presenting a Keeping the Faith presentation this coming Friday at their church. 7 p.m. is the start time on that, and then it'll continue on Saturday morning. And so lots of good things happening uh, this week. The children of Israel, by the time we come to chapter 5 here, they have been defeated, uh, badly defeated, by their kind of perennial enemy in those days, uh, known as the Philistines. And the Philistines have not only defeated the children of Israel, but they have taken captive uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which the children of Israel took into battle as kind of a glorified good luck charm, uh, thinking that somehow having this uh, uh, chest, uh, kind of a miniature hope chest that represented the presence of God. It was the holiest furnishing in the tabernacle and ultimately in the temple, represented the presence of God. But they, and so they said, let's bring the ark out into battle. Maybe God will give us the victory against the Philistines by virtue of bringing the ark out. They forgot that the, God refers to the ark as the ark of the covenant that contained uh, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, uh, written with the finger of God and given to Moses. And uh, the promise of God, the fullness of God's presence was given to them as they would be obedient to the covenant. And so they wanted to live a life of disobedience to God and uh, still think that they were going to uh, be able to enjoy the fullness of God's presence and victory. And it never happens. We, we get slaughtered in our spiritual warfare if we live a life of deliberate disobedience to God and then think that somehow because there's a Bible on the coffee table at home or I come to church twice a month or something like that, that I'm going to be able to withstand uh, the attack of the enemy. And so they were unsuccessful. The Ark of the Covenant was taken captive. Uh, Samuel's uh, mentor, a high priest by the name of Eli, when he heard about the loss in the battlefield, also that the Ark of the Covenant was taken captive by uh, the Philistines. Uh, the news was so shocking to him. Don't know, maybe he had a stroke, or maybe he just kind of lost his equilibrium, but he fell off of the bench. He was a very large man, elderly in his late 80s, fell off sideways on the bench that he was sitting on and broke his neck. And so now the, uh, 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 now the Philistines have the Ark uh, of the Covenant, and their problems are just starting because they have a very superstitious view of the Ark of the Covenant, and God knows how to cure them of that. And then the Philistines, chapter 5, verse 1, took the Ark of the Covenant, and they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. The area of region of the Philistines in those days was broken up into 
what were five, essentially five city-states. And each one of these uh, states had a capital city. And Ashdod was one of uh, those uh, capitals of one of those city-states. And we're going to become familiar in this chapter with uh, uh, several others of them before we're done as the Ark of the Covenant uh, makes its rounds. And so here it is, it's brought to Ashdod, one of the kind of the premier uh, capital cities of the capital states of the Philistines. To them, uh, they looked at the Ark of the Covenant as essentially just a trophy of war. In the ancient world, when the uh, pagan nations surrounding the nation of Israel at that time went into war and they either defeated one another in, in battle, they never looked at it supremely as our army was greater than your army. Uh, they came away with that if they were victorious, but the implications of a physical battle were higher in their minds, and they viewed the fact that if they defeated you, their God also defeated uh, your God, which was problematic when because of the disobedience of God's people, they were defeated in battle by their enemies here, namely the Philistines, it was natural that the Philistines would believe we not only uh, uh, whooped the children of Israel, but we also uh, beat their God. And so they, they take this Ark of the Covenant and they've captured it. They view it as a trophy of war. And uh, so they took the Ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon, and they set it by Dagon there in the city of Ashdod. Um, they're about to learn a, a lesson that everybody that holds their view is going to learn sooner or later. And, uh, and, that, and that is that God, the God of Israel is very, very capable of protecting himself. I never defend the existence of God. I'll give a reason, biblical proofs for the existence of God. I never look at the world and say, God is in trouble I don't feel like I need to defend Him. I may be passionate about the truths of the Word of God. I may be passionate about giving a reason for my faith and belief in God. But I'm never worried about defending God or His reputation in this world. I figure if He can get through to a numbskull like me, He can get through to anybody. So I never feel like it's a lost cause for anyone. But God can really, really take care of, of Himself. And uh, so here they are, they, and they're about to learn that defeating God's people and defeating God are two entirely different things, and uh, that when God's people fail to be a witness for Him in the world, then He will rise up and become His own witness. He knows how to protect His own name. Now, when the ark was brought into the house of Dagon and set by Dagon, Dagon was the chief god of the Philistines. And he has uh, had um, an upper body of a man and then the lower body from kind of the waist or this, this high down uh, was a fish in, in terms of the form. They were a uh, mariner kind of people, a sea people, so it only kind of made sense that if they're going to make a god that this god was good in the water. So we've heard of mermaids. Well, Dagon was kind of a merman, and uh, that's uh, who, who they uh, worship. Now, when they bring that Ark of the Covenant into the temple of, of Dagon, they place the Ark at Dagon's uh, feet, and, uh, or his fins. I don't know what we... somewhere on there. And, and so what the Philistines were doing was just... Uh, following along with their thinking, and, and that is they're presenting here to Dagon a trophy of his victory over the God of Israel. And so, you did it, you're the one that we give credit to for this victory, and now here is the symbol of their God, and we put him at your feet. And in putting this symbol of, of Jehovah at Dagon's feet, it symbolized the superiority of Dagon over the Lord. And so, the Philistines, having already mocked and humiliated the children of Israel on the battlefield, now it was the time and the opportunity for Dagon to mock and humiliate uh, Israel's uh, God. And so this is kind of the setting of what it is that has is, is happened in their thinking. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, uh, they then went to the temple, and there was Dagon 
fallen on his face before the ark of the Lord. Now, in the Hebrew, it's very interesting because here he's fallen off of his pedestal and he is face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant, a position of worship. In the Hebrew, the language is very, very picturesque. When they open up the door, they see their fish god on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. The idea is that went through their mind is, we have interrupted a worship service. We have stumbled into the room at the most embarrassing time imaginable when our God is worshiping the God of Israel. And that, that's how they would have viewed what it is that they saw uh, uh, happening there. And so, what did they respond, how did they respond to this? They took Dagon and they set him up in his place again. There is something wrong with your God, if you got to put him back up on his pedestal. <laughs> Something fishy about that, as a matter of fact. Okay, I'll stop. I'll stop early. And... But seriously, we don't need a, a, a God that we have to carry around and take care of. We need a God who will carry us around and take care of us. So, I mean, nothing is really adding up in the scene, but that's kind of the picture of what we worship so often before we come to know the Lord. You know, you come to know the Lord and you look back and go, what in the world was I thinking? That's, that's kind of the way that it is. So they look at it and they figure, well, maybe it's just some kind of a freak accident or something like that, an earthquake we didn't feel, and, and he fell off the pedestal. And so they left him then overnight again, and they rose early in the next morning, and there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, something they had seen before. But these additional characteristics, the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold only Dagon's torso was left of it. And so the worst fears of, of the Philistines uh, came to pass. They came in the next day and it was the same thing. I mean, this was two for two. The ark's only been in there two nights. And we wake up each morning and it's this scene. This is not a good trend that's going on here. But there's the additional thing where Dagon's head is broken off from the image and also his hands. And basically the commentary of what God is communicating to the Philistines is that your God is wisdomless. His head is broken off. He is powerless in comparison to me. I'll break His hands off in your presence. And here the Lord flexes His own muscles. He knows how to protect Himself in the very strongest place where Dagon's power ought to have been its greatest. Here he is in the hands of the Philistines. He is in Ashdod, one of their five greatest cities. He is in the temple of Dagon, their greatest and most powerful god. And he's throwing Dagon around like a rag doll. And he's trying to get through to them that they're worshiping the wrong god. He's trying to get through to them, I think, a couple of things. Number one, he's communicating to them that just because you defeated my people out there, you only defeated them because of their own sin, and you didn't defeat me when you defeated them. And then at the same time, he's trying to convict them of their own sin. They've done something wrong to God here in that they have taken the, the uh, symbol of his presence and they've brought it into their unholy temple and placed it at the feet of their God. And so he's kind of judging them in this way with, you know, making a mess of their God. And then he's also going to plague them for the same reasons as we'll see in just uh, a, few, a few moments. And so Dagon is completely defenseless uh, before the Lord. And he is defenseless before the Lord in the very place of his greatest strength and his power. And so only Dagon's torso was left of it, and therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor any who came into Dagon's house, his temple, tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. That is the day of that writing. Here's the reaction of the priests to this terrible humiliation of their God. 
Apparently, Dagon had fallen over, his head was broken off, his hands were broken off at the threshold within the room. So they made up kind of a rule that from now on when you come into the temple, no one can step on the threshold because that's where our God got broken. So that's, that's kind of the point they took away uh, from the situation. And it was a lot less than what God wanted them to take away uh, from the, the situation. It's amazing, I think, how many people will allow themselves to be continually disappointed and even damaged by the wisdomlessness of their God and the powerlessness of their God. And instead of looking at a scene like this or looking at the catastrophe of their life and saying, I think I better find another God. This isn't looking so great. They then set up kind of these uh, silly little religious traditions or secular traditions or whatever it might be, you know, is, is the lesson learned there. The great lesson God was trying to get through to them is, you're wasting time worshiping this thing. I'm greater than the God that you've worshipped. The logical conclusion that they should come to is, wow, the God of the children of Israel, Yahweh, Jehovah, He is the great God. Let's make Him our God too. And, and so this is what they, they should have been picking up from all of this. They, they didn't pick it up. Uh, they just uh, bandaged up and patched up and made new rules related uh, to their religion. You might be here tonight. And your God could be materialism, the you know, worship of material things. Uh, it could be the worship of your own mind or intellect or your degrees or your accomplishments or your own smarts and you haven't needed God up to this point in your life. I mean, you thought, I, I don't need, I'm smarter than the average bear, I can do what I want and then now here, uh, 20, 30, 40 years down the road, you're a casualty of worshiping yourself or worshiping the world or some philosophy or secularism even in, in the world and it's just beat you up. And it's a time to relook at what you're giving your life to, the wisdom of it, the powerlessness of it, and then turn to the true and the living God who's trying to get your attention by exposing the folly of what you worship in comparison to what you'll find in Him. Now, the hand of the Lord, verse 6, was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and He ravaged them, and He struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. I think the reason, again, that God physically smites the uh, Philistines in this particular instance is he's already judged his people for their sin out in the battlefield. Now he smites and he judges the Philistines again because of the uh, great sin and blasphemy that they've committed against the God, against the Lord, in bringing him into that temple and again putting him at the feet of Dagon. And so he smites them with a plague ravaged them, and he struck them with tumors, both Ashdod, the city that the, the, tabern, uh, the Ark was in, Ark of the Covenant, and its territory. Now some people believe that this plague that God smote the Philistines with, some people believe that he smote them with hemorrhoids, because I think it's in the Old King James, and the verse right there talks about he smote him with emrods. And so they look and say, well, it could refer to hemorrhoids. And it might refer to hemorrhoids, I don't know. Um, they're going to make gold symbols of whatever they were ravaged with, so a little bit later, I don't know how you do that. But there are people that hold that particular view, and God bless them, and they could very well be right. There's another camp of, of people who look at this and they say, it, that doesn't add up to us. We see why you come to that conclusion there on the basis of emeralds used in the, uh, emeralds used in the, in the uh, King James Version. But as we'll see a little bit later, somehow this plague, uh, the Philistines link this plague to a proliferation of rats that were, uh, was going on in the territory at the same time that all of this was happening. And so it seems to indicate that there was a disease that was being spread, spread by, by rats. And so uh, most people believe that it was like a bubonic plague or something like that that produced a tumor-like swelling 
on their bodies. The Hebrew word for tumors in the New King James, it literally means uh, swellings. And so it could refer to any kind of a boil or swelling or to any kind of, of a tumor. And, and so um, this is what they were smitten with. And then notice in, in uh, verse 7 the realization that comes out of it. When the men of Ashdod saw how it was, uh, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain uh, with us. Here's the reason. For His hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. Get rid of that God! <laughs> he throwing that God around like crazy. In other words, their God, again, God is exposing the powerlessness of, of Dagon to them with the idea that they would turn away uh, from Him. So, they, they look at it and they realize this plague that has hit us, it's a judgment that has come from the God of the Jews. And therefore they sent, and this is what they did with the Ark of the Covenant, uh, wonderful uh, brothers that they are, therefore they sent and they gathered to themselves um, all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath, which was another one of these capitals of these city-states. And so they carried the ark of God uh, of Israel away to Gath. Now, what's the old saying? With friends like this, who needs enemies? It's basically like this. Listen, we've had a great time uh, hosting the trophy of our great victory over the children of Israel. We don't want to share in all the fun. Let's just put this thing on a circuit for a while and run it around to all of these cities. And so that's what they do. And so they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. And so it was after they had carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, with tumors, uh, small and great, and tumors broke out on them. And therefore, the men of Gath, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And so it was, as the ark of God came to Ekron, didn't even get into the city, they see it coming from a distance, that the Ekronites cried out saying, they have brought the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. And so everybody wants to get rid of this ark like you can't believe nobody wants it and so they sent and they gathered together all the lords of the philistines and they said send away the ark of the god of israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people there isn't a single philistine in the land of the philistines that is even remotely convinced that they have beaten israel's god at this point God has made His point. And so let it go back to the Jews so that it doesn't kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout the city and the hand of God was uh, very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with tumors and the cry of the city went up into heaven. Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Seemed like 60 years, but it was a period of seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners. Listen, what good are these priests and diviners if, they, if they're powerless before the God of Israel? So, but this is just the, the lack of, you know, just logic on the thing. But this was their system. And so they called for the priests and the diviners and they said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. Let's get rid of it. And so their diviners and their priests said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, don't send it empty. Don't just send it back. But by all means, return it to him with a trespass offering. So a trespass offering is a sin offering. It's even more than a sin offering. It is an offering that you offer to God when you know that you have sinned, the sin that you have committed and you're asking God for forgiveness of. And so they realize we have sinned against this God of the children of Israel. We have done something wrong against Him. Don't just return the ark. We need to offer some kind of a trespass offering that is an acknowledgement of 
the fact that we recognize that we have sinned against Him and we are incurring His judgment and now we would like some grace. And then you will be healed and it will be known to you why His hand is not removed from you. And then they said, what is the trespass offering that we shall uh, return to Him? And they said, five golden tumors and five golden rats. Listen, I've seen worse jewelry. (laughs) So they answered, five golden tumors, five golden rats. Such a waste of gold, really, isn't it? According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. The idea of making the golden images, though, seriously, in the image of the tumor and an image of the rats, was their way of like, they don't know how to communicate to the Lord. So they're very superstitious people. And so they said, all right, send the ark back and any god who has, you know, the ability to put uh, any kind of thoughts together, will look down at his ark and he'll see the tumors in gold, he'll see the rats in gold, and he will recognize that what we're asking him to do is bring us relief in these two areas. So it was a way of communicating to the Lord what their desire was uh, of him. And so, therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. And why do you harden your heart as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them? Did they not uh, let the people go that they might depart? And so this is the plan that they uh, came up with for returning the Ark of the Covenant. And then here's the means of transportation. Now, therefore, they said, make a new cart. Don't be sending this thing back to them on any old kind of used, run-down, clunker-for-cash vehicle back to the Lord. They don't want to to do anything to offend. So they said, make a brand-new cart. Then take two milk cows, which have never been yoked. Brand-new, we're not sending him used stuff. And hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord, put it in the back of the cart, and then put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side and then send it away and let it go. And watch. If those two milk cows, in essence, against all natural instincts leave their calves back in the, in the city, the, the natural instinct of these cows would be to turn right around and go back into the Philistine city. They said, if those two go against all natural instinct and head down the road toward the children of Israel, then you'll know that God was in this thing, uh, the God of the children of Israel, and because there's this supernatural confirmation. Watch, if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has done this, us this great evil. If not, they come back to us, then we'll know that it was not His hand and that we've got something on that's going, that's going on here that's just uh, by chance. And then the men did so. They took two milk cows. They hitched them to the cart. They shut up their calves at home. They set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the golden rats and images of their tumors. And then the cow's head is straight for the road to Beth Shemesh. I mean, against all everything. Went right on along the highway. Didn't head off for any grass or anything. Just headed right down the road, lowing as they went. All this is significant. They're lowing because they missed their calves. But they're still going against instinct in the other direction. And the Philistines would have recognized it. This is supernatural what's happening with these cows here uh, right now. And so they were lowing as they, they went, and they did not turn aside to the right hand or the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them to the board, uh, border of Beth Shemesh. So they're going to follow this out and, and see how things go. Now the people of Beth Shemesh, these are Jews now, this is the region of Israel, they were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted up their eyes, and they saw the ark... And they rejoice to see it. Now you've got to put yourself in their shoes. This is the holiest furnishing in the tabernacle. 
The one thing you would not want to lose, they have lost it. They have no hope in their mind of ever seeing the Ark of the Covenant return to them in their lifetime. And after seven months, here it comes in the back of a cart with two cows that are carrying it in their direction. I mean, they would have just exploded with celebration at seeing the return of the Ark. And then the cart came into the field of Joshua, of Beshemesh, and it stood there. And a large stone was there, and so they split the wood of the cart. They offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord, acknowledged His hand and the return of the ark. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. And then the men of Bethshemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. And so a tremendous celebration uh, that was uh, going on here uh, for the children of Israel. And so when the five lords of the Philistines that had been tailing this watched it from a distance, they realized, all right, this has been a judgment from the Lord, and uh, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, there are five main cities, and the golden rats according to the number of all of the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone uh, of Abel on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua at Bethshemesh. All right. I mean, this is just fabulous. They are celebrating this. The Ark of the Covenant has, has been returned. And what a day it's been. And then disaster strikes in verse 19. And then he, the Lord, struck the men of Bethshemesh because they had looked into the Ark of the Lord. And he struck 50,070 men of the people. And the people lamented because the Lord struck the people with a great slaughter. It's probably better to read that God slaughtered 70 people or He judged 70 people among a larger population of 50,000 in the region of Beth Shemesh and the surrounding areas. But it's a great judgment that God brings upon these men of Beth Shemesh. What's their sin? What's their great mistake that they make? They lift the lid off of the ark of the covenant. And the lid that sat on the top of this chest, this oblong chest, it was a rectangular chest uh, known as the Ark of the Covenant, that lid wasn't called the lid, it was called the mercy seat. Even the Philistines, for all of their irreverence, never thought to remove the lid or the mercy seat off of the Ark of the Covenant. And yet, the children of Israel do so, contrary to the teaching of the Law of Moses. The Ark of the Covenant was only to be seen one time a year by one man, and that was the high priest, and then only after a sacrifice had been offered for his own sin. And he never even touched the Ark of the Covenant. He went in to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat as a part of the Jewish religion. Again, the significance of what happens here reaches all the way into our age today. The mercy seat, when we went through the, the law of Moses and we went through the furnishings and how these furnishings what they represented and how they are a picture of Christ. The mercy seat is a picture of Jesus Christ. The Ark of the Covenant contained three items. It contained a small bowl of manna. It contained Aaron's rod that budded. And then most significantly, of the three things that were inside of the Ark, were the two tablets of the Ten Commandments written by God. And we know that they're the mo that is the most significant thing inside of the Ark because the Ark is named after it, the Ark of the Covenant. God's law, the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses, 
is an expression of God's righteousness. It's an expression of His holiness. And so when God took and He built these furnishings, had the children of Israel make these furnishings according to His specifications, He said, I want the law in this ark, but I want to put a lid on this ark that's called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat represents Jesus Christ. It is fascinating that in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that when they described or translated the mercy seat in the Old Testament, they used the same Greek word that is used for propitiation in the New Testament. And propitiation means satisfying payment, and it speaks of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross so that sinful man could have a personal relationship with God. What is happening on this scene is sinful man is wanting to come into a relationship with a perfectly holy God without a mediator. Anytime you have perfect holiness and perfect justice, which is the law of Moses, coming into contact with sin or sinners, you have to have judgment. That's what's happening here. Sinful man is coming into contact with the perfect righteous standard of God's Word, and the only thing that can come out from, from God's holiness is judgment or justice. That's why the Bible says that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It speaks of the fact of Jesus being our mediator, not only in the sense that He is the one that allows us to have a relationship with God through His sacrifice, but He is the one because of His blood, He is the one that makes it safe for us to have a relationship with God. Because His righteousness, perfect righteousness, has been put to our account because of our faith in Him. And so here is a classic picture of sinful man saying, I want to have a relationship with God independent of a mercy seat, independent of God's sacrifice, independent of His Savior. And it is the same thing that happens today when a man or a woman or a child, I hope nobody in this room, but it may be some of us in this room today, where people have this idea, no, I'm not going to put my faith in Christ. I'm not going to allow His blood to cover me. I'm not going to allow Him to be a mercy seat or a mediator between me and this holy God. I'm going to take my chances, and I don't mind dying in this life, and one day standing in front of that God, I think I'll fare pretty well. You better go back and read 1 Samuel chapter 6. Because what is true of these people on a physical level, the judgment that was meted out upon them for just wanting a relationship with a symbol of God's presence. How much worse when an eternal human being stands before not the symbol but the holy God Himself in that scene, and the judgment that is then meted out at that scene is not temporal like this one, it is eternal. No sinner ever wants to stand in the face of that holy God and His righteousness without a mediator, without a mercy seat, without a Savior, without the blood of Jesus Christ. It is a fabulous picture of a New Testament truth here in the Old Testament. And so if you're not saved tonight, if Jesus' sacrifice for you on the cross hasn't been applied to your life by you putting your faith in Him. You need to do that. One day, every single person is going to stand before the true and the living God. And in that moment in time, we will not be able to change the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ at that moment. I will either stand before Him and He will be my Savior or He will be my judge. There's nothing in between. And the beautiful thing is, is that God, Jesus doesn't want to be anything but our Savior. 
but he can't overlook the seriousness of our sin. And so he came into the world to provide us with forgiveness because anyone that thinks that I can one day just wander into heaven and God's going to be okay with it on the basis of the kind of lives that we have lived, that's a person who has no comprehension of the holiness of God. And it's a passage like this that wakes us up to how holy this God is that we have a relationship with or that we want to have a relationship with only the sacrifice of Christ. Only that mercy seat, only His satisfying payment allows us to have that relationship. I say praise the Lord for it tonight. But this is what happened to them and what was going on, and it's a picture that goes on even to this day. I pray no one leaves this room unsaved this evening. And the men of Bethshemesh, this was their response to this judgment, they said, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? The first thing after this judgment that entered into their mind was, we have greatly underestimated the holiness of this God. Anyone that stands on the other side of this life before God Almighty Himself and then asks, thinks I'm going to just saunter into heaven is going to the moment he stands or she stands before God have a great awakening and a realization, a sinking feeling. I have terribly and tragically underestimated the holiness of this God and the holiness of, of heaven. And that's what they did. And to whom uh, shall it go up from us? Now, how do we get rid of this ark? And so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. And so they, didn't, they couldn't trust themselves in, with it and, and they didn't want to have it around anymore. And so... They asked the people of Kirjath-Jerim to come and take it off their hands. Now, then the men of Kirjath-Jerim came. They took the ark of the Lord and they brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So we ask ourselves, why in the world didn't they take the ark of the covenant back to Shiloh where the tabernacle was and put it back into the Holy of Holies? Probably because when the Philistines defeated the children of Israel in that recent battle seven months earlier, they probably only, not only defeated them on the battlefield, but they then went further into the land of Israel to Shiloh, the location of, of their worship of God, and probably uh, destroyed Shiloh at the same time. So there was no tabernacle in its former condition to bring the Ark of the Covenant to. So they're looking for a place to store it. Now, imagine being uh, Abinadab and, and his son Eliezer as they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant into your house. Could they bring the Ark of the Covenant into your house? <laughs> The fact of the matter is, is the Ark of the Covenant in one sense comes into your house every time you walk in the door. The Bible says in, that, in the old tabernacle and in the temple, the, the, they had the holy place and then they had the holy of holies, which is again that one room that that one priest could go into one time out of the year. It's called the holy of holies. And the Bible declares in the New Testament that because of our faith in Christ and the fact that the Holy Spirit, God Almighty and the Holy Spirit has come into our lives, that we have become the Holy of Holies. So they bring now this Ark of the Covenant into their house. There probably were at least Levites, uh, maybe even priests. And so they knew how to handle the Ark of the Covenant with some semblance of respect. And so... Uh, they didn't, you know, do something goofy with it. For 20 years, it's going to be uh, there, and uh, ultimately, it's going to actually be in that uh, in that place for a hundred years until the second king of Israel rises up, a man by the name of David, who will then endeavor to transport the Ark of the Covenant from Kirjath-Jerim to take it to Jerusalem, the new capital of, of a united uh, Israel. And so here it sits, and because nobody's wiped out in Kirjath-Jerim and nobody's wiped out in the house of Abinadab, it's just God's way of saying, hey, listen, I'm not upset with anybody, 
Um, I, I, I'm not, uh, there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with the ark. You just, things just have to be respectful and obedient related to God's word and how it's handled. So that ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim for a long time. It was there for 20 years. And uh, before these events that are going to be, we're going to read about here in just a moment again, as I said, a hundred years before, ultimately it finds its home in Jerusalem. And then ultimately Samuel, I mean uh, Solomon, the son of David, builds a temple and it's placed in the Holy of Holies uh, there. And so it was there for 20 years and the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And then Samuel spoke to all of the house of Israel saying, and, and verse 3 is just a beautiful verse on revival. And basically Samuel comes in and this is, there's a 20-year gap that occurs between verse 2 and verse 3. So last time we saw Samuel, his mentor Eli has, has died as a result of his uh, being um, uh, the, the, the bad news related to the capture of, of the Ark of the Covenant and, uh, but Samuel continued during the time that the ark was there in kirjath He continued to grow in, in, uh, physically and mature. He continued to grow spiritually and all. So now in, in verse 2, uh, in verse 3 really, he comes on the scene uh, fully grown as an adult and he begins in earnest now uh, to be the, a spiritual leader uh, in the nation. And so he basically comes on the scene and says to the children of Israel, are you tired of, of being beaten up by your enemies? Are you tired of the life that you're, you're living? God has a better life for you and he's, going to give, and he's going to tell them how they can have a revival in their nation from the defeated condition that they were in. And verse 3 it gives is a wonderful verse on revival in the Bible. And it gives four simple keys to revival. Whether it, and they're the keys to revival, whether the revival, a spiritual revival in a nation, or in a local church, or an individual Christian's life. And you may sit here tonight and you may say, listen, I've known the Lord for 20 years. I've known the Lord for 40 years. But I mean, there's no life between me and Him right now. And I mean, I know what life is. I had it earlier in my Christian life. But boy, do I need a revival. I need something new and big and wonderful and living to happen between me and God. And here in verse 3, Samuel tells the children of Israel and us how it is that that can happen. Samuel spoke to all of the house of Israel and he said to them, if you return, number one of the four things, return, return to the Lord with all of your hearts. So the first thing they needed to do was to return to the Lord with all their hearts. To give God a wholehearted, to make a wholehearted commitment to the Lord. Now heart, is a, that's a relationship word. So God isn't saying, listen, I want you to, you know, come back and, and I, I want to develop some kind of a legalistic relationship with you or something like that. He's just saying, listen, come back to a place where your personal relationship with God meant something to you. When your heart was engaged in a relationship with the Lord. I think the parallel for us in the New Testament is when Jesus wrote uh, his first of seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation and he wrote to the church at Ephesus. And I mean, they were doing all, everything. They were doing all kinds of great things. He said, I know your works. I know your labor. I know your patience. Patience. I know that you can't bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they're apostles and are not. You've found them to be liars. You've persevered. You have patience. You've labored to exhaustion for my name's sake. You've not become weary. You think, wow. What's the address of that church? I think I want to go to it. That's the perfect church. Jesus then said to that church at Ephesus, He said, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. You left that emotional heart relationship that you had with me in the very beginning. And the Lord never wants us to lose that. And so He speaks to them there and says, You need to return to the Lord with all your heart. So the Lord hasn't you know, saved us supremely because He needed a bunch of servants. Saved us for relationship. The second thing that he told them was then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths 
from among you. And so the second thing is to remove or to put away any idols in our life that compete with God uh, in, in our lives. Any sin, any material thing, any hobby, any anything, relationship that competes with the Lord. And then number three, prepare. Prepare your hearts for the Lord. In other words, once again, make my life available to God for Him to use any way that He sees fit. And then number four, serve and serve Him only. And the, the importance of the place of service in the Christian life. There are things that we cannot learn in this Christian life apart from serving God and the calling upon our lives. We certainly can't become like Christ without, be, without serving. Because He came into the world not to be served, the Bible says, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So the importance then of serving the Lord. I don't know, there's a lot of things that we learn from serving the Lord. One of the things that I like about serving the Lord is it certainly keeps you busy. And idle hands and idle minds are still the devil's workshop. And so service keeps us busy about holy things. Listen, one of the great things and one of the bad things uh, about being a pastor is being a, pa- being a pastor, that is, it is a workaholic's dream. I mean, the in-basket is always loaded up. Always way more than you can possibly get to most of the time. And so in a good way, Service keeps us, whatever His calling is on our lives, keeps us busy about holy things and sanctified things. And then the promise He said, and He, as you do these things, will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. You may need a personal revival here tonight. And you just do those four things and you'll see everything change for you in your relationship with the Lord. And so the children of Israel put away the Baals, and they asked and they served the Lord only. And Samuel then said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, uh, a city nearby, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And so they gathered together at Mizpah. They drew water. They poured it out before the Lord. And this was to represent their commitment to the Lord. There, there is hardly anything in life that is more irreversible than pouring water out on dry, porous ground. You ask any farmer about that. You pour that out on dry ground, it's gone in an instant. You can't get it back. That's an irreversible action. And so by pouring the water out at Mizpah before the Lord, but basically it was an outward way of the children of Israel saying to the Lord, this is the commitment that we're making to you, and it's an irreversible commitment that we're making uh, to you. And they fasted that day and, sa- and said there, we have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. So we see the kind of spiritual influence that Samuel was having in the nation uh, during his life and his ministry. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, uh, they thought, all right, we got a rebellion or they're gathering together for war against us. And so they felt they needed to nip it at the bud. And so they looked at this as a, a hostile action and the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel and the idea is to fight against them in battle. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And so the children of Israel said to Samuel, go to uh, Kirjath-Jerim, get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it out. No, they don't do that. Hey, no experience in life is a total waste that we learn something from. So they've learned their lesson. We don't treat the Ark of the Covenant like a rabbit's foot. So here they, they handle it in a different way. They handle it, in, it with faith. So they're afraid that's real. That's real in our lives. And so the children of Israel, they said to Samuel, don't cease to 
pray for us to the Lord our God that He will save us. He will save us. Not something that represents Him from the hand of the Philistines. So beautiful faith. God will meet us where we are in our faith. This is just beautiful, innocent, young faith, and God's going to honor it. And so Samuel took a suckling lamb, offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord, and then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. I hope everybody has experienced a good thunderclap or two in your lifetime from a bunker or something like that. You know. I remember one time I spent a summer in uh, Seneca Falls, New York. You know, we don't get thunder and lightning like they do back there. I got some exposure to those storms. You say, oh, isn't that cool? And you're looking at the lightning and it just fills the whole sky and, and you're hearing the thunder and all that until it gets really close. Boom, the whole house shakes all the vases on the wall are moving and that kind of a thing. So whatever it is, God took and unleashed some thunderclaps on these people that were so close to them that it literally confused their minds. It just completely disoriented them. And, and so they were overcome before Israel and the men of Israel went out of Mizpah, pursued the Philistines and drove uh, them back as far as below Bethkar. And then, and then Samuel took a stone and he set it up between uh, Mizpah and Shen and he called the name of the stone Ebenezer and saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. And so here he makes this kind of a memorial to the victory that has occurred there and he called this memorial or this monument stone Ebenezer which means the stone of help. And the key to understanding the Ebenezer stone there is the two words in the passage thus far. Thus far the Lord has helped. And so he sets this stone up as a physical reminder of God's faithfulness to them thus far. And the realization that what God has been in our lives thus far, He will always be. Because the Bible says that He does not change. So here is a memorial. God would have the children of Israel set up memorials. Why does God establish memorials for us? Because we have terrible forgetteries. And we need memorials or things to remind us of what God has done in our lives. Otherwise, we'll hit our next trial like we've never been brought through one before. Or maybe I'm just talking about myself. But when we set up kind of an Ebenezer stone and we say, God did something great in my life just now. This is amazing. I never want to forget it. But I have such a capacity to forget so much. I don't want to forget this. And then to set something up, they did it physically. But then for the Holy Spirit to set something up in our lives where we can look back and say, I want to remember that for the rest of my life. And I want it every time I think about what God did for me there, the reminder of how far He's uh, brought me, that He is going to do and be that very same thing in my life in the future. And so that's what the Ebenezer uh, stone was, was for, what He's always been he will always be God has brought us this far he will bring us the rest of the way I like it when Paul writes to the Romans and he talks about the fact that God already sees us glorified that's how sure our salvation is God already sees us in heaven reminds us of God's word through the Apostle Paul, favorite verse, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. And so God's past work in our lives should always make us confident concerning the future. Now, this whole thing related to an Ebenezer stone Got to understand what an Ebenezer stone is in order to understand 
what in the world we're singing in that famous old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Because he's referencing this particular incident. And then the writer of, of the hymn says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come. And the intention is, is that in, this incident from the Old Testament would be brought to our minds. And so the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come uh, anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel, and then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and that's his faithfulness to the Lord. He went from year to year, did a circuit annually, going to these different cities in Israel in order to, to judge the, the situations in their cities. He went year to year on a circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in those places. So um, you remember in uh, our Western history in the United States, we had uh, circuit judges, Circuit riding judges, that's when there were a shortage of judges, and so they would, instead of being in one city, they would go to a, a larger a number of cities in a larger area, but they had a shortage of judges in those days. So Samuel made his rounds. We have uh, in history talking about uh, circuit preachers. Uh, think of John Wesley. Think about uh, George Whitfield, who at history, time of history in England and then in the United States, a great shortage of pastors proclaiming the Word of God. And so they would go from city to city to city to city, and uh, just uh, like Samuel did uh, on a circuit, teaching the Word of God. But he always returned to Ramah, which was the home of his parents. That's where he established his home long term. And there he judged Israel and he built an altar to the Lord. And so we'll stop there and pick it up in chapter 8, um, Lord willing, next week. Let's have the worship team come forward. I'd like them to lead us in a couple of worship songs.